0: As we work our way through it, so our text is Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 through the end of the chapter. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch, Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre in the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we do seek your help. As we just sang anything good that we do comes from you so we need your help to stand and to breathe we need your help to understand your word most importantly so give us your help in understanding your word today help us to see Lord what it means to call upon your name and how good it is to do that in Christ's name amen well why is the world the way that it is Why is the world the way that it is? And when I say world, I mean, I mean it in the way that the Apostle John means world. When he says in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why is that world and this world that we live in the way that it is? And you might think, well, Sin. Sin is what makes the world the world, and that's certainly true. If you keep going in First John, the very next verse says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And that reference there is directly back to Genesis 3 in the fall. Eve saw that the tree of knowledge was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desired to make one wise. And she took some and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her. That's exactly what John means by the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. But we've already seen that it's not as simple as sin came into the world and everyone is wicked was as wicked as they possibly could be. The reality is that even though Adam and Eve sinned, God restored his relationship with them. There were certainly consequences. We've studied those over the weeks. They lost access to the tree of life. Childbirth and child-rearing would be more difficult. Work would be more difficult. They, They could not be in God's dwelling place anymore with God. But God had not cast them away from His presence. Not forever. We saw last week that Adam's family was still in relationship with God. He still speaks with them. They bring Him offerings. They worship Him. And through that relationship with God, even though Abel was born a sinner... He had faith, he was accepted by God, he was considered righteous by God, as we see in Hebrews 12. Abel's sinfulness, the sinfulness he inherited from Adam, it was restrained by and through his relationship with God. So so even though the origins of sin and worldliness are rooted in the fall, in Genesis 3, unrestrained sin... And what makes the world so worldly is better seen here in the second half of Genesis 4. This section of Scripture is kind of unusual. It's probably one that you might just skim past. There's some strange things here. The second half of Genesis 4 is is really meant to be a contrast. A contrast between Cain's family, which is what we see delineated here, and Seth's family. Seth's people call upon the name of the Lord. Cain's people do not. The Spirit is showing us a picture. What does it look like several generations down the line when one family is calling upon the name of the Lord, trusting in the Lord, and one family is not? The contrast there is is the contrast between godliness and godlessness. Godlessness. We'll start at the end of the passage. This is kind of unusual, but I want you to see the contrast. This is a compare and contrast sermon. Uh, so we're going to start at the end because that's where it becomes clear that Moses is actually contrasting these, these two legacies. All right, so just a little side note as, as we've been reading this, and if you keep reading into, into uh, chapter 5, you're going to see that Cain's family has some of the Exact same names and some very familiar, similar names to what we see in Seth's family. Cain has an Enoch and a Lamech. Seth has an Enosh, an Enoch, and a Lamech. Cain has Methusael. Seth has Methuselah. Cain has Irad. Seth has Jared. This is evidence. This is what Moses is doing here by showing us these similarities. He's contrasting the two families. Almost like parallel universes, one with God, one without God. So we're going to start by looking at the end, the family line who is with God. So look at verse 25. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, also a son was born, and his name was Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, that last line is really important. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The people here, it's Seth's people. Seth's family line. Those people are calling upon the name of the Lord. And what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? If you were to read this text all by itself, uh, maybe just pick up the Bible for the first time and you see that, you're probably going to imagine a group of people out in a field just saying, Lord, Lord, Lord. Uh, it, it's, it's the image that comes to mind as you read this. But as you read the rest of Scripture, and always remember, that's what we're doing here, reading the rest of Scripture, interpreting Genesis from the rest of Scripture, you realize that's not what's happening. This is what we call a synecdoche. It's a fun million-dollar word for you today. Synecdoche, a smaller part of an idea that represents the whole. So, so literally, to call upon the name of the Lord means to pray. To ask the Lord for help. But this phrase represents a whole lot more than prayer. It's all of what it means to worship and follow God. We do this in English as well. So, so my wife gave me her hand in marriage. But I'm married to more than just her hand. right? The part is representative of the whole. Thank God. So, so, so it is with calling upon the name of the Lord. All throughout the Bible, calling upon the name of the Lord means someone is praying and worshiping the Lord as well as trusting in the Lord for deliverance, trusting in the Lord for protection, but also living in obedience to the Lord. Praying, worshiping, trusting, obeying. Did you see all of that in Psalm 18? Look look at the way that David uses this phrase in Psalm 18. I'm not going to read the whole Psalm again. (laughs) But thank you, Robert, for reading it for us. Psalm 18.1, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. See how he's thinking about God? All, God the Lord is all of those things to David. And so David says, I call upon the Lord. Because he is worthy to be praised, and I'm saved from my enemies. Calling upon the Lord isn't some, it's not like a magic word. It's not like when you say, Lord, you get everything you want. It, what it means is David loves the Lord. He worships the Lord. He seeks the Lord. He prays to the Lord. This is what it means to be in covenant relationship with God. We see this all throughout Scripture. We see it in Zephaniah, Zephaniah 3.9. Zephaniah 3.9 says, says, for at that time, speaking of the time of Messiah that is to come, at that time I will change the speech of the peoples, the nations, to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. See that, that, that phrase being used to basically make the nations worshipers of God. Joel's prophecy is one you might be familiar with. Joel chapter 2, verse 32 and it shall come to pass, again, talking about the age of Messiah, when Messiah comes, and he has, it shall come up to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter tells us that this has been fulfilled at Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out and people began to worship Jesus as Lord. This is where you and I are now. We call upon the name of the Lord, and when we do that, we're, we're, we're praising Jesus Christ. So even today there's a connection for us as Christians all the way back to Seth's family. This is what characterizes Seth's family. They're praying to the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord. They're serving the Lord, hoping in him, trusting the Lord to do what? To fulfill the Genesis 3:15 promise that the Messiah would come. In other words, Seth's family is hoping through trusting the Lord, they're hoping in Messiah's coming, and they're living in obedience to the Lord, in reverence to Him, in fear of the Lord. Biblically, all of that is encapsulated in that one little phrase, call upon the name of the Lord. Well, as you keep reading into chapter 5, which we won't do today, but we'll do in a couple of weeks, give you a preview of what we're going to see. You're going to trace Seth's line, his lineage, forward. All right, so just thinking now into the future, which is the past for us, but in the future for Seth, you trace Seth's line forward seven generations from Seth, and Seth is the the first in the line of the promise. Well, then you end up with the righteous Enoch. That's significant. Seven in, in the Bible is an important number, it's the number of completion, the number of fullness. So God created the world, and then He rested on the seventh day, all was complete. The fullness of the family. The fullness of the family who trusted in the Lord, the good fruit of those who called upon the name of the Lord, is a man who walked with God and then God took him. He's in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 because of his faithfulness to God. He is the first of the line of the promise to bear the hope that death will not always be the end. We'll talk about that more in chapter 5. But you keep going get to Enoch and then you eventually get to Noah through whom the line of the promise will be preserved even through God's judgment. That salvation being previewed there for us at the beginning of Genesis is coming from the Lord for those who call upon his name. In the meantime, let's look at this other family. So you see, see that the good being pictured for us? That's the comparison. Let's look at the, the contrast here with, with Cain's family. Cain's family. The understanding with Cain's family is that they have departed from God. They are not calling upon the name of the Lord. It all starts in verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So here's the progression that we've seen so far in Genesis. Adam had been in the garden, God's dwelling place. Adam sinned. He was sent out of the garden into the countryside, if you will, of Eden. He's still in God's presence, though. We shouldn't miss that. Adam and his family were still in God's presence after the fall, but they're not allowed into the garden, the dwelling place of God, because of their sin. The best way to think about this, the the Garden of Eden, was uh, think of it like the Garden of Eden is the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple. And the land of Eden outside the garden is the rest of the temple. So Adam's family was still in covenant relationship with God, but their interactions with God were mediated through the altar where they brought their offerings. When Cain is judged by God for murdering murdering his brother, he's cast out of the land altogether. So he's not even allowed in that place where they bring offerings. He's sent away from the presence of God. He's essentially being kicked out of the camp, out of Eden, out of communion with God. He has been disinherited by God. Cain chose loyalty to the serpent over God, so God has turned Cain over to his own wicked desires. Well, Cain leaves the fertile land of Eden, and Genesis says he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, a couple of notes here. Cain's judgment was to be, if you remember last week, he was to be a fugitive and a wanderer. That's what God had said would become of him. But Cain has disregarded God's judgment and he has settled. The irony here that, that Moses has thrown in for us is that Nod, that, that the word Nod, the that, that land of Nod, it's, it's, a, it's a play on the word wandering. So Cain is settling in the land of wandering instead of wandering when he should have been, whenever else was settled. Notice also that Nod is east of Eden. In biblical geography, we have to, again, we have to read this through a broader biblical lens. In biblical geography, there's this sense that the further east you go, the further you get into the world or into worldliness. What will be later called that the people of the east or people from the east are almost always violent, godless people. So for the, for the Hebrew people, hearing Genesis 4 read to them for the first time, when they hear this, Cain went east, they already have this sense, oh, east, bad place. Bad place, bad people, away from God. That's, that's their thinking when they hear east, and that comes from later on in Scripture, but it originates right here. So let's look at verse 17 then. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch and I know that you're not going to let me get away with just going past that. Uh, We can't avoid the subject of where Cain got his wife. So let's look at the facts. What is obvious from Genesis 4 is that there are other people, right? A wife. We haven't been told about her yet. There are other people that Moses did not think it that important to tell us about their origin. Who they are uh, or who are they rather, and, and is it possible that God made other people outside of Adam's family after he made Adam and Eve? Is possible. But the problem with that theory that there's other people who are not a part of Adam and Eve's family is that you run into a, uh, what is very crystal clear in the book of Acts. This is what the Apostle Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Acts 17, 26 And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. One man. So the simplest, most biblically consistent explanation then is to understand from Genesis that Adam and Eve were the first pair and all other humans came from them. And yes, those humans intermarried. Get over it. I don't, see any, I don't see any need to go outside of that. That's as far down the rabbit hole as we're going to go unless you want to buy me a cup of coffee and a nice pastry. So Moses didn't think it was super important to talk about this uh, any more than staying, saying that, that Cain had a wife. Uh, for Moses, th- that's not the big issue. The big issue with Cain isn't so much where did Cain get his wife, but what became of Cain and his family. What is, what is the legacy of this man who walked away from God? Well, look at the rest of verse 17. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. When, he, when Cain built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now, this is also the first city that we see in the Bible. The next cities that we will see in, in, in Genesis will be Babylon in Genesis 11 and then Sodom. Cities in general, like the East, don't have a great reputation in early Bible history. It's not that cities are evil, though. Okay, not in themselves. After all, we will spend eternity as Christians in the heavenly city of Jerusalem. that comes down to earth. It's a good city. But cities often, in Scripture, cities often represent human greatness and strength. We emphasize human They represent human greatness and strength. So so Babylon, that great city that originates in Genesis 11 and becomes the the, the biblical stand-in for all the pride and all the boasting of sinful humanity. Cities cities represent everything that humanity can do without God. That's what cities are in, in the Bible. All around the world, even today, that's true. Cities are often places of decadence, violence, debauchery, corruption, cities are always on the cutting edge of radical progressivism. And and by progress, we mean further and further away from God. But in cities, you'll also find what? You'll find the tallest buildings, the biggest libraries, the largest universities, the, the fastest, strongest humans in all the world competing in athletics in cities, the most talented, the most beautiful humans performing on stages. The smartest humans, inventing and researching and fixing and healing. You'll find the richest humans in cities and the poorest humans in cities. We could go on and on, couldn't we? Cities represent the essence of humanism. The same is true all the way back, however many thousands of years this is, all the way back to Cain and this city that Cain builds. Cain has built a city... And look what he does. He names it after his own progeny. It's a monument to, not God, Cain. A monument to himself, his own greatness, his own legacy. Cities didn't only represent human greatness. Cities way back when were also known for the protection that they offered. Cities had stone walls and big strong gates and tall towers to see threats way out in the distance. Cities were built for protecting what was inside the city from what was outside the city. So the fact that Cain has built a city tells us he's seeking protection. Now we already know Cain was a, a fearful man, He's fearful for his life. When God sent him away, Cain was afraid that he'd be killed if anyone ever ran into him. But what happened then? Do you remember? God marked Cain. And he marked him as a promise of God's own protection. Protection through mutually assured destruction, but it was protection. If Cain would have only trusted that God would protect him, that God was sufficient to to protect him, that God could be his fortress, that God could be his stronghold, then he would have been at ease. But this city building tells us God's protection was not enough for Cain. He needed additional protection. Cain doesn't fear God, does he? And if Cain doesn't fear God, why should he think anyone else would fear the God who has threatened vengeance on anyone who would hurt Cain? He doesn't fear God. He doesn't trust God. He doesn't believe what God tells him. Cain, as we saw last week, doesn't have faith in God's promises. So he's not calling upon the name of the Lord for help. Cain is going to help himself. Cain calls upon the name of Cain. That's what this city represents. Cain's greatness, for one, in his own eyes, but also his protection of himself. The Spirit here is showing us the effect of human sin when it is unrestrained by devotion to God. And this is where we naturally go. Outside of God, we fly headlong into self-determinism, self protectionism, and self-exaltation. That is unrestrained sin. That is worldliness. We'll come back to this in a moment because this city building isn't the only problem that comes from Cain's line. Look at verse 18. To Enoch was born Irad, Irad fathered Mahushiel. Mahushiel fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. So if you're counting... Remember, we have the seventh generation from from Seth. If If you're counting the seventh generation from Adam, you get to Lamech. That's important. Remember that number of completeness? The complete effect, what Moses is showing us, the complete effect of sin in Adam's life is Lamech. Sin that is unrestrained by faith in God. Begins with Cain, goes all the way down to its full effect. The full fruit is Lamech. So what's Lamech like? Well, the first thing Moses tells us about Lamech is that he had two wives. He doesn't have to tell us this. He didn't tell us about anybody else's wife or mother. He could have just said, and Lamech's sons. He could have easily done this. He could have easily said, and Lamech's sons were Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal. And he doesn't do that. The Spirit through Moses makes a distinct point out of the fact that Lamech took two wives. Look at verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other was Zillah. Why is is this important? Who cares? Well, marriage, going back to Genesis 2 was meant to be, designed to be, a one-flesh union of two people, one husband and one wife. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man, singular, shall leave his wife and his mother, there's only two here, and hold fast to his wife, singular, and the two of them shall become one flesh. What's Lamech done? Lamech has gone outside of this, outside of God's given design, and he's taken two wives. Now the Bible never outright says thou shalt not have multiple wives. God lays out a positive decree regarding marriage, marriage. Genesis 224. The design is there, the standard. And he later says in Exodus that adultery is sin, but it isn't clear that polygamy is necessarily necessarily adultery. Add to that, and I'm sure you've got this question because you've read the Bible, add to that many of the so-called heroes of the Old Testament. They have multiple wives, a lot of them do. Jacob does, and David does, and Solomon does. And they aren't rebuked by God for their polygamy, though they are rebuked for other sins. In fact, in some cases, and my area code's not 801, Uh, That's Salt Lake City. In fact, some cases, with with Jacob and David's wives, their subsequent marriages are viewed as somewhat of a triumph. All right, So if you're you're reading Jacob's story or David's story, you'll see Jacob winning Rachel from from Laban, and and it's a victory. Now he's got more than one wife. And it's it's kind of viewed as a good thing. And then you you read David's story, and David wins Abigail from Nabal. and, And it's a victory. Now David's got more than one wife. So someone could, I won't, but someone could make the case that polygamy is shown in a positive light in Scripture. Therefore, it must be morally acceptable, right? You would be wrong to make that leap. A lot of people are, Oh goodness. Okay, <laughs> where was Dustin going with that? You would be wrong to make that leap, and here's why. And it all comes back from the, to, the, to the story of Lamech. The story of Lamech, the origin story of polygamy is our primary case against polygamy. The story of Cain's lineage is a story of departing from God, humanity separating from God and going their own way. We're supposed to see that Cain's family moving further and further away from God is a a net negative, not a positive. This unorthodox marriage is the culmination of seven generations of secularism and departure from God. It's a bad thing. Marriage, the very first human institution, the means through which, which God is determined to have His image bearers participate in spreading His glory. Marriage was the first thing attacked by the serpent, wasn't it? Genesis 3. The serpent knew that since marriage is the bedrock institution of humanity, he could do damage to humanity if he could interrupt that marriage. And he did. He turned Adam's marriage upside down. Well, here we are. Years later, in the line of Cain, the legacy of the serpent's work, and marriage is again being distorted. Only this time it's not the order within marriage, but the one flesh union itself. The full blossoming of the serpent's work is realized in what? In a redefinition of marriage. You seeing that? Lamech has redefined marriage. This isn't a modern phenomenon. We're not just weird today. We're only a couple pages into human history, and we're already seeing that a departure from worshiping and serving God has led to a departure from honoring the God ordained institution of marriage. Lamech has redefined for his own benefit what God has created for his glory. That is the essence of worldliness to take what God has made for his glory and use it for our own selfish purposes. And we see that refrain continuing with Lamech's kids as well. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. So from Cain's lineage, here's a summary of what's happening here. From Cain's lineage, you have a group who becomes proficient in animal husbandry, which we would call the the sciences. And then we have a group who become musicians. We call that the arts. And then you have a group who is good with bronze and iron. We would call that technology. And then there's Naama. And if you're wondering, why was she lumped in here? Well, her name means beautiful. So here's a secular society. Completely godless, secular society with success in the sciences and the arts and technology, and they have beautiful people. And these things are not evil in themselves, are they? Just like cities. These things are not evil in themselves science, art, technology, beauty. In many ways, these are blessings from God. As you keep reading in the Old Testament, Jacob. was was proficient in animal breeding. David was a poet and a musician. There are skilled craftsmen who designed the temple. Esther is known as beautiful. The talents of Lamech's kids aren't wicked. These are good things. The trouble isn't the talents. But the trouble is that this is what they're known for. Apart from God. Their legacy is not... They called upon the name of the Lord. Their legacy is their work and what they look like. As Christians, let's think about this. As Christians, we want our kids to be good at these things, right? We want our kids to be proficient in the sciences. We want our kids to be good singers and musicians and writers and poets. We want them to be able to, to harness the earth's resources. It's good for our sons to be handsome men. It's good for our daughters to be beautiful women. But the question at hand is not, are those things desirable? The question is, are those things what we, is that what we want our kids to be known for? Is that to be their legacy? The world says says to be successful, you've got to go to the best colleges, you've got to get the best jobs, you've got to invent something useful, start a business, buy something for a low price, sell it for a higher price. Without God, that's, the best of what the world has to look forward to. But how much better, how much better to raise kids who call upon the name of the Lord? Kids whose names are maybe not known for the ages for their their achievements, but whose names are written in the book of life. It's hard to prioritize things we can't see, isn't it? It's much easier to aim for worldly success and then add on Christianity as a just-in-case-hell-really-exists bonus. But the Genesis 4 contrast, it's not that. The contrast is Seth's family who calls on the name of the Lord, and that's their legacy. That's what they're known for forever. And then that's contrasted to Cain's family who look to themselves and find greatness in themselves. And so they invented a few things. Between these two ways of living, our priorities should obviously, that's the, that's the comparison here, the contrast, Moses is making it very clear, our priorities should be like Seth's, trusting in the Lord for provision, for safety, for security, for the future, for happiness, for salvation. Why? Because we have even more reason to call upon the name of the Lord than Seth did. Seth had the promise of the coming Christ. We have the Christ. We have seen the faithfulness of God. And we know on this side of history that the Christ is God's own son. We know the the love of God more fully and completely than Seth and his family ever, ever could have hoped for. If Seth's family was known for their worship of God based on what they were hoping for, how much more how much more should our families be known for our calling upon the name of the Lord who has proven himself faithful. We don't have to build cities for our own renown our own security. We don't have to look for a a redefinition of marriage to satisfy us. We don't have to look for our our own earthly accomplishments in order to find worth. In Christ, we have eternal security. In Christ, we, we see the true purpose and the fulfillment of marriage and what it's meant to be. In Christ, we find our ultimate value and our ultimate worth. I'm not saying here that the world isn't attractive. It is. That's part of the point. The success of Lamech's offspring seems seems to almost justify or at least diminish his sin. Right? Okay, yeah, so he so broke God's design for marriage. But look at what the good that came out of it. That's like, that's like saying, well, the legacy of the 1960s isn't that bad because we put man on the moon. And you might conclude that if, if Moses had not told us the rest of the story, that's what the story is. Not so bad. Not so bad. They invented some cool stuff. But Moses does tell us the rest of the story. We see in verses 23 and 24 the logical conclusion of this. What is it like to live in a place like this? Tyranny and the abuse of power. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy sevenfold. So, just as Lamech, who is shown here as sort of the, the king of this city, the, the leader of this city, just as he has redefined marriage for his own selfish benefit, he's also redefined God's decree to Cain, God's law of protection. Again, that was meant for him to protect Cain and his offspring, but Lamech has redefined it for his own benefit. And look at the way he redefines it. This is not just. This is tyrannical. He says, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, and he's bragging about it. This isn't, this isn't eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth justice, is it? And that is the most you know, rudimentary form of justice. This is a life for a scratch. If you hurt Lamech, if you bruise Lamech, if you scratch Lamech, You die. In God's law of protection for Cain, it was God who said that he would be the one who would would take vengeance against those who would hurt Cain. And God has the right to do that. Perfectly righteous, perfectly just, all-knowing. God has the right to show his justice. But who is the avenger here? It's Lamech. Lamech has put himself in God's place. And the result is unjust tyranny. And Lamech is so boastful; he even admits it. He knows that his punishments are disproportionate, doesn't he? He, he knows that 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 when he says if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, remember, seven remember that is that's God's law decreed on Cain's behalf. Then I mean, Lamech is 77-fold. Lamech is saying, uh, he's greater than God. He's more powerful than God, and by his own degree, he can enact a law that is more severe than God's punishments. This reveals something to us. This is a bit of wisdom from the scriptures that we can derive. In a society that is tethered to God, that is fearing God, there's always the recognition that it is ultimately God who is to be feared. Right, So God is the source of ultimate justice. He's the source of reason. He's the source of logic. He's the, the source of law. He's the source of dignity for humanity. But when there, when there is someone higher than the king, someone higher than the government, then God is the powerful one. God is the only one worthy and deserving of worship. A just government exists as a sort of subordinate to God's authority. you seeing that? But in a society that has departed from God, that's what we're seeing here in in this city. In a society that has departed from God, a society like Cain's civilization, the government or the king becomes God. So, the laws are not tethered to God's law. They're rooted in the king's own mind. And those laws will only be as just and as logical and as reasonable as the king is. And when that king is a man like Lamech, the result is tyranny for everyone. Law in a secular society becomes self-serving for the lawgiver and tyrannical for everyone else. Don McLeod puts it like this. He says, the godless society has no logical basis for law and order. It's full of men like Lamech, arrogant, violent, competitive, vengeful, and self-assertive. Each pursues his own interest. And since the different interests are incompatible, he secures it only at the cost of his fellows. So what he's saying is because of sin, when a government of any size, whether that be a household like your home, a city like ours, or a nation like ours, when, it, when, when that government is led by someone who doesn't fear God, the result is injustice and tyranny. That's, that's the story. This is why Scripture tells us, pray for your leaders. Look at 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. See what he's saying? If you don't pray for them, if they're not fearing God, your life won't be peaceful and quiet that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Pray for your leaders, all of them. Pray for the school board members. Pray for city council and for county council and for our governor and for our legislators. Pray for the courts. Pray for our federal government if the lawmakers are submissive to god's law then society will be just and god's people will be permitted to worship him freely that's our desire that's what we pray for the more that we can worship freely the more that the gospel can go out to our neighbors We don't expect a perfect government, right? I'm not asking for that. We don't expect a perfect government until Christ, our king, returns and establishes his eternal government. But in the meantime, we pray that God would save our leaders so we could have a more just government. Not like Lamech's. So while we wait on the Lord, because he's coming soon, while we wait on his return, we now have a decision to make, don't we? Now that we've seen these two families, will we, like Cain and his family, go our own way, seek our own name? We seek to protect ourselves, we live for ourselves, we live for our own glory. Or, here's the alternative: will we, like Seth's family, hope in Christ and call upon the name of the Lord for his help? For his salvation. Will we serve Christ and live for his glory? Those are the two ways before us, aren't they? Let's pray for the faith to go Seth's way. To serve Christ. Father in heaven, we call upon your name. Knowing that you are Lord over all. You are our only security. You are our only hope. You are our only source of of acceptance and justification. Lord, we are nothing without you, and so we seek your help. We pray for the faith to rely on you above all else. Yes, in Christ's name.